If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. You just bought a home in the suburbs, but no one told you about all the birds, specifically this one, who seems to be calling out Roy. Roy. But who exactly is Roy? And why doesn't he ever respond? Maybe Roy is just bird speak for save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto. I guess until Roy answers, we'll never know. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Welcome to Country Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Ken Burns' country music documentary hosted by Nate Wilcox and James Porter. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and James discuss Episode 3, The Hillbilly Shakespeare, whose title refers to Hank Williams. They also discuss Lefty Frizzell, Kitty Wells, Eddie Arnold, and the post-war honky-tonk boom that country music enjoyed. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and joined again by James Porter to continue our discussion of Kim Burns' country music documentary and also Bill C. Malone's Country Music USA, which is the source of said documentary. Mr. Porter, welcome. Doing all right. How about yourself? Cannot complain, and we're up to number three, The Hillbilly Shakespeare, number 1945 to 1953. And this is the absolutely epitomizes their trend and habit of personifying all this stuff in people because Malone calls this the boom years and Burns goes and makes it all about Hank Williams thoughts. Yeah. You can't get around them over them or through them. So, you know, he's back to life, but you know, for a reason, (laughs) no doubt, no doubt. And the hillbilly Shakespeare is pretty awesome and apt terminology and i don't know if that originates with rodney Crowell's dad or um what but that's an anecdote that they tell in the show rodney Crowell says his dad took him to see hank senior in 19 december 1952 it's his first memory and whenever uh, rodney would get mad at him his dad would remind him i took you to see hank williams kids so sfu you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway so they yeah. go ahead i said pulling rank <laughs> indeed, indeed. And and so they, they put it in the context. And rather than focusing on, like, they open up with a, a contextual segment, and they do this on every episode. And this time, instead of talking about post-war as post-war, they talk about honky-tonks. And 
that's another kind of interesting choice because there's more going on in the post-war period than honky tonks. But in country music, honky tonks are a big deal. And Ray Benson boils it down to two things, beer and dancing. And that it's, and that's why you get this new realism in country lyrics. You get things like Floyd Tillman slipping around, Hank Thompson's yeah. Wild Side of Life, et cetera, et cetera. Any thoughts on this, on talking about honky-tonk rather than all the I, – I mean, you know, should they have talked about honky-tonks or should they have talked about the post-war era? Uh, I should think because you should have talked about the honky-tonks as part of the post-war era because you can't really, like, you know, separate the two. To me, I mean, it's like, I mean, I think you kind of feel the same way. I mean, it's like you kind of like, you know, pieced out the honky-tonk and from there you kind of pieced out one man. You know, it was almost like – because, I mean – it's almost like, you know, the way Ken Burns puts like, first there's Hank Williams and there's everybody else, you know? Yeah. But Hank was one of the more, I mean, of course, I mean, Hank Williams, I mean, his, 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 uh, his, uh, his influence was like really wide. And I was kind of thinking about this today. I was in the used record store and I saw that L Roy Acuff actually did like two LPs to my knowledge where he uh, sang Hank Williams songs. And I saw one of them at the store, and that kind of hit me. It's like, because Roy Acuff, he was like older than Hank, I take it, right? Yes, absolutely. And he was one of Hank's model influences. Hank described himself as a combination of Roy Acuff and Ernest Tubb. Right, because, I mean, Roy, I mean, I'm, looking, I'm reading the liner notes, you know, where they had somebody interviewing him, you know, and Roy's pretty much talking about Hank as if he was like, as if he learned from Hank's knees. <laughs> he learned from, like, you know, learned, right, learned country music at Hank's feet. You know, either as like a predecessor or a peer, you know, but for somebody who came along as early as Roy Acuff to give that much credit to somebody who came afterwards, I mean, that's a hell of a tribute. I mean, every country singer, you know, that came along between the 50s and the 70s did at least one Hank Williams LP, you know, but for somebody from an early generation as Roy, I mean, that kind of like, you know, lets you know his influence. You yeah, know. yeah, and that's a big one. And and even even his other model, Ernest Tubb, which they start the episode focused on Ernest Tubb, and they talk about honky tonks, and they segue into, uh, you know, one of the leading exemplars of this was Ernest Tubb, and and we we talked about this last time. They could have had Ernest Tubb there on the second episode because he was around in the late thirties and early forties, a big part of the World War II era. But I'm fine with him holding him back and putting him here because he was the leading edge of the honky-tonk revolution and the jukebox revolution. And they've got some great anecdotes in here about, you know, they've got um, Fred Foster talking about Fred Foster. And I think he ran Monument Records. I know he was important in Dolly yeah, Parton's career. Yeah, and Maury Orbison's career. And so he's talking about when he was a young kid working in the fields and he'd be outside and they had a neighbor who had the radio or a jukebox and he could hear mostly just the melodies. But when it was Ernest Tubb singing, he could actually hear the words clearly enunciated and that twang cutting through. And, you know, Ernest Tubb then adds electricity, adds electric guitar to cut through even more because he had been told and he had heard for himself, presumably, you know, when his records were on the jukebox and it was an acoustic guitar break, you just could not hear it. And these juke joints and, you know, that's the electricity. Somebody, I think it was Marty Stewart said this, electricity was your friend. And, and they used that for a reason because they were in these blood buckets and they needed to get over the noise of the beer bottles smashing upside people's heads. Oh, surely. I mean, the blues guys were going through the same thing around the same time. 
You know, I mean, yep. that's I mean, because Muddy Waters, you know, Little Walter, I mean, they were playing like these joints on the south side of Chicago, you know, it was like the equivalent of what, you know, Ernest Hubman were doing down south, you know, and just because they knew that they couldn't cut through the crowd, you know, playing their little acoustic guitar. So it's like, well, first off, the electric guitar just come out, you know, Muddy got in on that early, you know, and uh, Little Walter, he had the ingenuity to like, you know, put his harmonica up through... I'm probably getting it wrong. I hope not, but this just put his harmonica up through a public address mic through an amp, you know. And yeah, that's my understanding. He played like, right. Then he played hard like a saxophone. That's how he cut through the cut through the crowd. And getting back to uh, country music, uh, something about I mean, I think Ernest Tubb. I mean, this is the thing. One thing interesting about Ernest Tubb is that he didn't have the greatest voice. So I'm sure with him even. I mean, even him, even more than Hank, people probably heard Ernst and thought, I could do that. Yeah. And, and the, I, mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I, I love Ernest, but he, that's a man who would go off key talking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, it's like, you know, you know, whereas it's like, I mean, you know, I think they were both influenced. I mean, you can hear like, you know, Hank's influence on a lot of different people from like, Lefty Frizzell to Merle Haggard to even lesser knowns like Hard Rock Gunner. Now I can't think of anybody who was trying to trying intentionally to sound like you know Ernest Hub, but I'm sure that a lot of people other than that, Hank Williams. I'm not, huh? Hank Williams himself. Yeah, Hank, does Hank it. Williams. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, right. it goes yeah, through. But, but so, yeah, but even so, people were like you know, I mean, they probably think that you know, oh well, I can't sing as good. As, you know, Hank was influenced by Ernest. You know, people probably think like, oh well, I can't sing as good as good as Hank. But I see Ernest is out there doing his thing, so if he can, I can too. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think I think Ernest Tubb was kind of like the Ramones of his day, inspired a whole lot of people. Three chords <laughs> and the truth, and and this talking singing voice almost that really does. You know, like they said on the show, Ernest Tubb said, "Everybody drops a nickel in that jukebox." Tells his girlfriend he could sing just as well as me. And let's go ahead and hear a little Ernest Tubb. And I, I picked. His cover of Floyd Tillman slipping around because it's kind of a twofer. And I noticed Ken Burns likes to do this too. He likes to use something like Hank Williams doing I Saw the Light to stand in for this whole trend of gospel songs, which are really big in country in the post-war era. And, um, you know, this way we can get two, two birds with one stone. We got Ernest Tubb, who had a number one hit with this record in 1949. This is Floyd Tillman slipping around. Seems I always have to slip around to be with you, my dear. Slipping around, afraid we might be found. I know I can't forget you, and I've got to have you near. But we just and that was Ernest Tubb, the man with the limited singing gifts, made worse after a tonsillectomy that killed his yodel. He had been an acolyte of Jimmy Rogers up to that point. Um, and here he is doing Floyd Tillman slipping around, which, you know, this is a big distance from the Carter family just 15 or 20 years earlier. They're singing about cheating on, on, on their wives here. And it's the beginning of country music as this adult music, you know, it won't be long, you know, 15 years more and you can have George Jones. I think it was Melville Montgomery doing duets about wife swapping, you know, and, and they're 
they're kind of creating the 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 Bill Malone book calls this the the boom years, and this really is the last time country's going to have this clear path at the white working class because somebody in Memphis, a couple of somebodies in Memphis are going to blow up this whole this whole system, and by going so adult, they're creating this opening for Elvis Presley to to go for the teen market because right. You know, yeah, teenagers don't get this whole cheating on on your wife stuff the way that thirty somethings do. What's the funny part? I was just reading something the other day about the reason why you don't have country oldie stations is because the people who are buying, the average person was buying Buck Owens, you know, and Merle Haggard back in the heyday. They were like thirty five to forty five years old, and it's possible they might be dead now. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's probably it's probably, it probably grim way of saying it, but. I mean, maybe, I mean, I don't know, I kind of get the impression that nobody, even if they're in the South, nobody says like, oh yeah, when I was a teenager, I'd go to the malt shop and I'd hang out with my girlfriend and we listen to Buck Owens. I mean, that's what you say about the Beatles or Del Shannon or somebody, you know? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's yeah. That's what you say about Hawk Hawkins, you know, you know. Yeah, it was more grown up, but also another thing to keep in mind is until the the Clear Channel radio monopolies of the 90s, Every country station was an oldie station. I can remember hearing Hank Sr., Hank Snow, um, all of that stuff on my regular country radio just mixed in. And 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 it was totally normal. You know, country was very tradition-minded until until you know the Garth Brooks explosion caused the bean counters to really take over and clamp down. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think that's interesting. Because yeah, country, I mean it's like I've heard more than one, you know, it's like there were a lot of people, you know, who went from rock to country, like Bob Lumen and Conway Twitty. They said one of the main reasons they switched to country is because, you know, in rock, they're, they're more quickly to write you off as a has-been, but in country, they'll stick with you. Yeah. There's, and there's a point that's like, I mean, when I first started listening to country music in 1990, it's like, you know, Garth Brooks was around, but he hadn't really taken over yet. You know, it's like, if... You know what I'm saying? I mean, I mean, I mean, of course, country had a change in the guard, just like pop music did. You know, but they were still playing Conway Twitty as late as 1990. Yeah, you know? they, they would for another five or six years, and 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 we'll get we'll get to the Garth Brooks uh, phenomenon later, and and the whole f- yeah. sort of renaissance they had in the 80s of a really sweet period that I I was lucky enough to enjoy. But let's let's keep moving with this one. They they do the introduction, they talk honky tonk, and then they they. And they do the Ernest Tubb segment, but they make it clear that there's some powerful forces that are going in other directions than Honky Tonk. And, and the two that they single out are Eddie Arnold, who kind of represents the crooner pop side of country, and Bill right. Malone, who's um, the traditional side of country evolving into bluegrass, which is the most radical form of country. So it, it's really interesting. And I actually meant to start with this Tom T. Hall quote. Um Tom T. Hall has this great quote when he's talking about Bill, Bill Monroe, which is that he believes cosmic forces visit the planet in the form by way of human beings, is the way he phrases it. And he, and he describes Bill Monroe as a cosmic force. And I just think that's so perfect because, you know, with this show and everything, I'm trying to do what Edward taught me to do, which is look at these things in a sociological aspect, look at the audience look at the technology, look at the the economy. But when you're talking about music, you're ultimately going to have to bow to talent. And 
people like Bill Monroe and Eddie Arnold and Hank Williams, I think Cosmic Force is a great way to describe that level of talent that's, you know, gonna be an impact. As long as Hank Williams was in the music business, he was gonna have a massive impact. Um, you know, just because of the raw talent and 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 Bill Monroe and and Eddie Arnold had that very much in common. And one thing I liked about this was they you know, make it very clear that Eddie Arnold is the pop guy and he's the contrast to the hardcore Ernest Tubbs and, and Hank Williams. But they also, you know, like playing cattle call, when you hear him doing those hardcore yodels, he got that from Jimmy Rogers. It's fascinating to me that the, the you know, Jimmy Rogers is definitely the forefather of the honky tonk side, but he's also the forefather of the whole Western side, the whole Gene Autry, Eddie Arnold tradition. And I just love seeing those threads connect. Well, he got it from, uh, I mean, Eddie Arnold did get the yodel from Jimmy Rogers, but even that early in the game, you can kind of tell that Eddie is going to get in more. I mean, Eddie's records are going to be played in more upscale situations than uh, than, uh, John, than Jimmy Rogers. And it's not because, you know, everybody's caught up to Jimmy Rogers' sound. It's that even at that early stage when all he had was cattle call, you know, it's like there was still kind of a gentility about it that Jimmy Rogers did not have. I mean, Jimmy Rogers, I mean, you kind of get the person who's like, you know, the fucking bully, excuse me, the bully of the town who loved the party. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, Eddie always had this image of, like, you know, like, you know, the, I don't want to say Mr. Rogers, but, like, you know, you know, just a, just a, a, a law-abiding neighbor up the street, you know? Yeah, and he kind of shaved. To me, he kind of shaved off the rough edges. I'm not going to say whether it's bad or good, but it is. You know. Yeah, he he definitely did shave off the rough edges. And they talk about him playing Constitution Hall in D.C., which is a big deal and a very stuffy um, place. And and they also talk about Ernest Tubb headlining a Grand Ole Opry show at Carnegie Hall in 1947. So this is a period when country is really penetrating in po- into the pop market and following up on you know, the popularization of country during the World War II period, which we talked about last time. But again, I think one thing they undersold, and they used Hank Williams' song Cold, Cold Heart as the surrogate for this. They talked about how Tony Bennett covered Hank Williams, and it was a massive pop hit. But they don't talk about, you know, the fact that Bing Crosby is still having big-time pop hits with songs like Sioux City Sue and... I think doing even albums, you know, those collections of 78s that were the true albums um, that were, you know, all his country and Western stuff. And you had the Tennessee Waltz, which was a Pee Wee King song from, from, I think, the mid 40s that then Patti Page drops. And it's one of the biggest songs of all time. I believe it was the biggest song in all of pop music history up to that Mm -hmm. point. Um, and you know they, they skip over that entirely. And the only time they talk about it in the series is when they talk about Ray Charles and his modern sounds in country and western in the '60s. And that goes into their effort to really emphasize the influence of African Americans on country, which I'm all for, and is it's great and important. But again, pop is the mainstream, and is going to reach more people than. Country's always a minority audience, up until Garth Brooks, and and I guess to a lesser extent Waylon and Willie. That's the first time you get, you know, in the seventies you get platinum country artists. But you know, I really think that you can't overemphasize the Tennessee Waltz and how big a deal it was. And also, yeah. this is I, I think I think, I think country and pop. I mean, it kind of comes away. To be honest with you, 
because we're getting ahead of ourselves, but there were a ton of like in the like in the pre Beatle era, like roughly I want to say fifty seven, sixty four, there were a ton of country crossover records. You know, yeah. that were just as you know, that were just as big in, in, in pop as they were in country, you know, and not all of them were necessarily like smoothed out Nashville sound either. I mean it's like you had like really rugged records like, you know, like Hot Rod Lincoln or Six Days on the Road. Yes. You know, you know, and and, and, and those are pop hits too. So I mean I don't think it really started with Garth Brooks because, I mean, Buck Owens probably looked at Garth Brooks' success and kind of recognized himself, you know, because they were both businessmen, too, you know? Yeah, 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 very yeah. true. But but Garth was the first time they were moving massive, massive units to the degree that it true. distorted true. the whole yeah. thing, you know, the gravitational pull on it. Although Eddie, Eddie Arnold was damn close, and, and he was a, a big, big deal. And let's go ahead and let's hear a little bit of Eddie Arnold. And this is one... Uh, an early hit that he had called Anytime, which is a song that Emmett Miller had done. Emmett Miller's the guy, the minstrel performer, blackface minstrel performer, who recorded the version of Lovesick Blues, one of the versions that Hank Williams was inspired by. And I thought it was pretty interesting that, again, Eddie Arnold is also covering Emmett Miller. And here he is, Eddie Arnold doing Anytime. You say you want me back again. That's the time I'll come back home to you Anytime your world is lonely And you find true friends are few Anytime you see a rain And that was Eddie Arnold doing Emmett Miller's Anytime and I don't know, this just fascinates me because the more you look into Emmett Miller, the more of a what the hell is going on here it becomes because the dude never had hit records, ever. You know, he's the last man off the off the minstrelsy boat. And I mean, you know, Jolson well, was one of the all these people found out about him. Yeah. And, and and he had this 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 massive influence. And you know, I mean, Leon Redbone's whole career is basically doing Emmett Miller color covers. Louis Prima and David Lee Roth are doing uh uh Emmett Miller covers. And obviously Hank Williams Sr.'s breakthrough hit was a an Emmett Miller song, but it's just fascinating. And there's the whole debate, you know, did Emmett Miller teach Jimmy Rogers how to yodel and that stuff? But there's there's a lot going on with Emmett Miller, and he's one of these artists that wasn't popular in his day, but had this big influence. Bob Wills is another one who, who covered M Emmett Miller's song. So I don't know. You got any thoughts on Emmett Miller? Because I really don't have an answer for why. Uh, obviously, his record's great, but he had this massive influence on people coming after him when he didn't click in his own day. I'm trying to piece together. It's like, I can't think, because, I mean, records last longer than live performers, and it's like, live performers, excuse me, and it's possible that these people were talking about might have seen him, you know, at a at a vaudeville show, kind of like you know, like like probably like like fourth build from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like the person who the person who starts out the show just as everybody's coming in. You know? Yeah. But but, but it's like I mean, this is the thing. It's like I mean, record geekism wasn't it it it, 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 it wasn't like it is today. You know, so it's not like now when it's like you know. You got like all kinds of collectors and whatnot, you know, they'll talk about, say, a Rocky Erickson, you know, or somebody, you know, and they'll be like, and Rocky Erickson was only like regionally popular, yet people who did not live in Texas or California rave about him because they yeah. found out about it because people kept spreading the word. But I don't think it's like, you know, the, the culture that Emmett Miller came up in was not a fanzine culture. 
No. You know, it was like, you know, pe- people, when people, you know, got through with playing records, they gave them away for the war effort. You know what I mean? Because they needed yep. more shellac or something like that. But yeah, but it's like, you know, so I mean, I'm kind of at a loss to find out, you know, how they could have found out about it too. So I'm thinking, because I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, but Merle Haggard, he was a big Emmett Miller fan. Am I correct? Yep, yep, yep. I think he gets it secondhand though, because he already knew. I figured, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get it. You get it. Hank Williams, Lovesick Blues. Where'd that come from? And you can and you can trace it back. So, you know, it's it's and and supposedly I think a guy named Rex Griffin actually did the version that Hank probably heard. Um, you know, so again, I don't know. Somehow Emmett Miller echoes through this whole thing, and Eddie Arnold here, you know, doing a version, which is something I totally did not expect. And yeah, and the other thing about Eddie Arnold I want to mention before we move on is managed by Colonel Tom Parker, who's, um, you know, takes in places nobody had been before, Masters Television, uh, very early on. And, and, you know, so Eddie Arnold is a big deal, but they, they use him as a proxy for all of the pop stuff. Cause like you might've mentioned it already, but they don't talk about red Foley. They mention him a couple times, but they don't talk about red Foley. And here's a guy who took over from Roy A. Cuff headlining the grand Ole Opry syndicated show on NBC every Saturday night. He, um, did peace in the Valley, the Thomas Dorsey, uh, gospel number, right. had a massive hit with that. Did old Shep that Elvis, uh, covered and loved. And also Red Foley did a whole bunch of boogie songs. And there's one called pinball that's a, boogie. That's downright dirty. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the thing that, you know, people kind of tend to overlook about Red Foley that he was kind of like, as with Hank Williams, he did kind of point the way to rock and roll in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think that if, Charlie or Rounder or MCA or some reissue label came out with a with a compilation highlighting you know Red Foley's rock more rocking sides. I think that might have changed changed a lot of people's minds about him a long time ago. I mean, as it is, because when he died in 1968, that was a big deal. Yeah. So I mean, Hank Williams Jr. another name Luke the Drifter Jr. Hank Williams Jr. came out of the record called "I Was There the Night Red Foley Died." That was like big, a uh, big thing. However, over the years, I mean, you know how it is. It's like for every, I mean, I hope you don't mind me like using another genre as an example, but Not at all. For, every Kurt, for every Kurt Cobain who will always be remembered no matter what generation it is, there's always going to be a Jim Croce, you know, who only the people who were there know about. Yep, you know? yep, yep, yep. And I think, and let's just say that, that you know, Hank Williams is the Kurt Cobain the situation, you know, where, yeah. whereas Red Foley is the Jim Croce, the guy that if you were there, you knew him. He, uh, he was just familiar with, like, you know, uh, your, your your best friend, you know, but at, as the years went by, and plus the fact, too, it's like, I don't, he, even though he was, he died in 68, it's not like, I think his hit-making days are already over. You know, so he was kind of, yeah. I'd say he probably, I mean, I don't have the Billboard country book in front of me, but I kind of get the impression that his hit kind of tailed off after the 60s started, even though he was still under contract to deck and making new records. I don't think he was. Uh, I think he's somebody who didn't survive the Elvis era as far as a, as being a hitman. Yeah. I, I think he was part of, you know, just the whole generation of country performers whose careers basically got annihilated when rock and roll come along. And that, that whole beginning of rock and roll, and we'll come back and talk about Bill Monroe and the development of bluegrass, but they used the Maddox brothers and Rose to, as a surrogate for all of that country boogie stuff. And and that's, you know, Maddox Brothers and Rose totally did do country boogie. And they also use him as a surrogate for all the West Coast stuff. Like Bill C. Malone starts his chapter 
on the West Coast, because that's where the mm-hmm. biggest shows were happening. That's where Bob Wills was. And one guy they do not mention at all, and I know why, is Spade Cooley, who for a while was building himself as the king of Western swing. And then he made the unfortunate decision to get really drunk and murder his wife in front of his kids. But I think you know, people talk about that more than they do his music. <laughs> they absolutely do. And and that's only fair. If you're going to do something that crappy and low down, you know, that's going to get hung around your neck. I can't, I don't think anybody can complain about Spade Cooley getting canceled here, but, um, you know, but nonetheless, he was a big thing. He was an early performer, country performer to be on television and, and was really big. And, and, kind of lays the groundwork for the whole Bakersfield explosion in the 60s. And they also don't mention the Delmore brothers. They talked about them in the last episode as one of the brother groups. But the Delmore brothers move over to King Records in Cincinnati in this period and do a whole ton of country boogie stuff and might be the most, well, them and Moon Mulliken, who they also don't mention. I've noticed this about most country historians. They kind of leave Hillbilly Boogie and Rockabilly in the margins. Yeah. Yep. I mean, not just with the special, but I've kind of noticed this. Like, I mean, maybe I'm just biased because Hillbilly Boogie, Boogie and Rockabilly is how it got in the country proper. But I mean, they'll mention like, you know, I mean, I mean, and, and, and now mind you, like not all Rockabillys were like directly country influenced either. So, I mean, that you can kind of understand. But even yeah. so, it's like, you know, when Rockabilly is dealt with, you know, it's like, you know, Elvis, you know, and the and and, and the main people from the from Sun Records, and then they move on to like you know country politics, you know, or like you know, the crossover hits. And going back to what we're saying now about the, the hillbilly boogie, you know, it's like they'll mention a Red Foley, or they'll mention a Delmore Brothers, or they'll mention a Moon Mulligan, but not for the boogies. Yeah, they make the they make the boogies sound like you know an afterthought. You know, and and, it, uh, and truth be told, maybe it's my rock and roll bias showing, but I think Moon Mulligan's best stuff is the rockers. I mean, you take that away, and his straight country stuff is pretty much it's good, but it's not really that distinguished from anybody else that's coming out. You know, but the stuff like Seven Nights to Rock, it's like, you know, and let's be blunt here, it's like he could have had some rock and roll hits, but you know, he, I mean, he he was too old and he was balding and he wore a cowboy hat and. You know, image-wise, I don't think, you know, some kid in Philadelphia, New York, or L.A. is going to want that. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and and let's hear our sponsor break. And then I'm going to bring up somebody that gets left out of jazz histories a lot and gets left out of this history, but I think it's important to talk about this era. But let's hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally get your point. And I think that's because, you know, country historians are, are – coming from country today or country 20 years ago and looking back. And so it's very easy to see where the tree forks and and let that branch that went off into rock and roll go away, but the, the precursors of that. But the guy they don't mention on this at all is Louis Jordan, who is the father of R&B and who's a jazz guy. And jazz historians almost never talk about Louis Jordan, even though he was in Chick Webb's band with Ella Fitzgerald and was this massive, massive star. He was just as big on the R&B side in the 40s as Eddie Arnold was on the countryside. I mean, like they talked about one year here where I think there were um, – between Hank Williams and Eddie Arnold, they locked up something like 50 weeks of the number one slot on, on the country charts. Louis Jordan did that all by himself on on the R&B charts. So, you know, Louis Jordan is this massive force. And to me, there's this 
push in the post-war era for simplicity. And and Bill yeah. Monroe with bluegrass and Charlie Parker with bebop break from that and, and go into this virtuosity thing. And another guy they don't mention here is Merle Travis, who's out on the West Coast, you know, cutting hmm records for Capitol Records. And a lot of people thought he was going to be the future of country and Western because he's jazzy, he's sophisticated, he's witty, he's writing these songs like 16 Tons that becomes an enormous pop hit later on. Smoke, and smoke, not smoke, only that, that cigarette. He played, he, played, he, he played the electric guitar. Yeah. Like, I think you can kind of see it like, you know, he's kind of like a, you know, to Northern ears, he's kind of like a bridge between, say, Les Paul and rock and roll. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. and people thought that would be the direction that country was going to go in. They thought it would build on that complexity of Western swing. And instead, Hank Williams comes along and Ernest Tubb with the three chords of the truth and just wipes that stuff out, just like Louis Jordan does on the R&B front or takes – dance jazz and turns it into R&B and really simplifies it, cuts down the size of the band dramatically to a five or seven piece band. And, right. And I mean, because Louis Jordan, a lot of ways, he was like a man caught between errors. You know, it's like when he, when Louis Jordan was in his prime, I think the big band era was still going strong, you know, and he kind of stood out because here he was this 75 at a time when most big bands, like maybe like, 20 guys, 21 guys, so much. He that, was you know? just but, enough but, ahead but of that to be on the cutting edge and, and take over because the war between the draft and the rubber tax and all that stuff, it killed the big band. So he was right. kind of the guy who did it on his own before he was forced to. You know, he wasn't I mean, matter like. Matter of fact, I've heard, some, I've heard like latter day records from Cab Calloway, you know, where I don't know whether a producer took him aside and thought that, you know, a cab, we got to record you in a Louis Jordan style, but that's kind of what it amounted to. Because Louis Cab Calloway was a clown anyway, and he was from the big band era. But I've heard some later stuff he did for RCA, like maybe in the late '40s or early '50s, you know, where the band is pared down, and the song he's asked to do, you know, Louis could have done that, you know. Yeah, and absolutely. what I was going to say was, you know, about Louis between the man between eras, it's like. He kind of stood out for being who he was during the big band era. But when R&B became defined, you know, when it became like, you know, down like, you know, Wynonie Harris and, and uh, uh, Roy Brown, all those people, that's when uh, Louis was, was starting to fade as far as records went, you know? Yeah, absolutely. He he drops off real hard in the early 50s. Um Kind of after the people who'd figured out his innovations grab the torch and run with it. And we don't know what would have happened to Hank Williams had he lived, um, you know, but it's entirely, po I don't know, it's hard to say. You know, Louis Jordan, I don't know. To me, Louis Jordan is just one of those underranked guys, and I'm totally getting off, off track. I don't want to spend the whole country episode <laughs> talking about Louis Jordan, but, but I just think Louis Jordan is so much more important than most people realize these days because he just um, gets undersold in the history in, in a big, big way. Well, no, but his, his storytelling skills remind me of a lot of country records. Yes. Because I mean, maybe I don't know about it, but somebody should have done a country version of Saturday Night Fish Fry somewhere down the road, you know? Yes, 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 absolutely. I feel like a Moon Mullican doing that. And as far as like Hank Williams, like because he died like right at the cusp of rock and roll. It was right around the corner and he missed. But sadly, it's kind of blasphemous. But if he lived through rock and roll, I don't think he would have made either. Yeah. Like being older, you know. Yeah. It's like, I, this is the thing. I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, as an example, it's like, you know, Dion, he made some great folk rock records in the mid 60s on Columbia, right? Yeah. I think. 
he had a couple problems in his way. Number one, you know, the fact that he was kind of strung out on heroin by his own record. <laughs> that holds you know, and also, number two, it's like, you know, when he made those folk rock records, it's like it was already post-Beatles, okay? And there were a lot of people getting shoved off to the side, like Del Shannon, you know, even though still making good records that kept up with the times, you know, to them, a Dale Shannon or an Everly Brothers or Rick Nelson or Dion, they were like ghosts from their early, that, that's what their older sisters listened to. Yeah, you know, they were seeing the this as the something new. Right, and even though Dion was coming out with these really great folk rock records that kind of slightly anticipate the blues rock explosion by about by, by, by a year, you know, and they kind of like slightly, might have been a little bit ahead of Bob Dylan as far as the whole folk rock thing goes. You know, it's like, even though he's got the electric guitar, you know, and he's like dressed in black, you know, and he's like, you know, and he's got the blues influence, you know, about like Bob Dylan, the Beatles and all, people still see him as the guy in the alpaca sweater saying run around suit. Yeah, you know, yeah. But he's left off from another generation. And I think that's what would happen with Hank. It's ent- entirely know, it's like, possible. Because Lefty Frizzell is kind of our test case for that because he lived into the rock and roll era and and he had like three or four massive number one hits like Long Black Veil in 59 and and Saginaw, Michigan in 64. But he was never the massive star he was. And Merle Haggard in this episode calls it the Hank and Lefty era. And I love that they had Merle Haggard because he was a lefty guy. He did the whole Lefty Frizzell tribute album. And and there was a period in 51, 52 when Lefty and Hank were just going toe to toe. And they both had top five hit after top five hit and are just absolutely red hot. And then, you know, Lefty's one of these guys had a lot of personal issues and, and heavy drinker and, and total spendthrift and profligate kind of wild man. And, and, you know, so yeah, oh, yeah. I think, I think your, your, your theory there is, is borne out by Lefty Frizzell because he was just, once the rock and roll era came along, I mean, I don't think you can. Well, he, did, he, he did make, he did make some credible rockabilly records. I've heard them, and they're great. Yeah. Yeah. However, but he wasn't like, seen as a rockabilly be, guy. Right. It's one thing to be a collector, listen to these things like five decades after they came out. You know, but it's like, if you're like, say, oh, I don't know, if you're like a teenager who's into Elvis, you know, and uh, Ricky, you know, and then along comes your Uncle Lefty, you know, coming out trying to sound like, you know, the, the young rockers, you're, gonna, you're not going to buy that. You're going to be like, Left, Uncle Lefty, what are you doing? You know, I mean, you, yeah, you, yeah. You, you're supposed to be what my parents listen to. I mean, it might have worked for Webb Pierce for a minute, you know, but for some reason, you know, Lefty made some really good rockers, but, you know. Well, one thing, one thing I've done that I've found was pretty informative is listen to a lot of stuff chronologically, like take your, your MP3s and sort them by release date. And then yeah. that takes out that telescoping thing. Because when you hear, say, you know, 15 Rockabilly hits all of a sudden and Lefty's at the tail end of that pack, then you get a closer idea of what it was heard like at the time, you know, that it, that people had already done that by the time he gets around to doing it. And even though it's a really good right. record in the context of its, of its moment, it, it doesn't sound quite as great, but let's go ahead and hear a little bit of um, Hank Williams. Uh, this is my bucket's got a hole in it, a song he learned directly from T-Tot. Yeah, my bucket's got a hole in it. Yeah, my bucket's got a hole in it. Yeah, my bucket's got a hole I can't buy no beer Well, I'm standing on the corner With a bucket in my hand 
I'm waiting for a woman. It ain't got no man, cause my bucket's got a hole in it. And that was the late, great Hank Williams doing My Bucket's Got a Hole in It, a song he learned from his mentor Rufus Payne, known as T-Tot on the streets of Montgomery, Alabama. And this gives him another... blues influence, dig that guitar solo. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that guitar solo was blues all over. I mean, that was, oh, blues, yeah. nobody. was like straight up blues. Yeah. Yeah, that that song is is totally and they and they talk about that. They talk, you know, they get Marty Stewart in there to to say once again, you cannot overstate the influence of black Americans on country music and just T-Tot and then um Bill Monroe's mentor was black too. I'm always forgetting his name. I think it was Arnold Schultz, I want to say. And then obviously A.P. Carter had Leslie Riddle riding around the country with him and, and learning songs. So just from those three influences, like Marty Stewart says, you know, you've got this um, massive, obvious influence on on country and on very different types of country. And and this I, I liked that they kept bringing Charlie Parker in there as the comparison to Bill Monroe, because I've always seen that bluegrass and bebop emerge around the same time. They're both lost because of the recording strike we don't hear these formative transitions these things just explode like you know there's bill monroe and then there's a couple a break there for the recording strike and then boom you've got bluegrass and i do talk about earl scruggs and the virtue and he's like the stand-in for all the virtuosos of this period i guess i talk about chet atkins too but like we said we didn't talk about merle travis and um i i dig it i mean i'm a big earl scruggs fan and and it's hard not to be and showing those the video of him and they talk about how he put so much effort because he had stage fright into making it look easy and boy does he you know but just lightning fast and and i don't know i think it's a little overstated when they say that earl scruggs is a world historic musical genius but at the same time i think of you know charlie daniels devil came down to georgia and earl scruggs is that guy <laughs> you know he was the guy that could beat the devil. I mean, he's, he's <laughs> Paganini or, you know, the guy that'll take that gold banjo away from the devil and, and just beat him because I'm the best there's ever been. And, um, you know, that virtuosity can become tedious. We saw it in rock and roll and, and the post Eddie Van Halen era where Eddie Van Halen was fine. Randy Rhodes was, was really great. But then by the time you get to Ingve Malmsteen and stuff, you're just, you know, by the time the guy in night Ranger was doing 10 finger tapping, you know, exactly. the, party, the party is way over. And so country never got over virtuoso, virtuoso, but bluegrass maybe did. And, and, um, what's well, always interesting about, cause you mentioned Earl Scruggs and virtuosity. I mean, you will notice that, you know, Flat and Scruggs, they broke up because Scruggs w- wanted to pursue the country rock market where Lester Flat wanted to stay where he was at. Yeah. You know, because I mean, cause yeah. it, I mean, it's like, I mean, because his Lester's, I mean, Earl, the, after the two broke up, Earl went out and did a rock record and then he formed a country rock band with his sons, you know? Yeah. You know, where it's like, you know, L- Lester Flat, he keeps doing the bluegrass thing, but I think one of the first records he puts out you know, after he breaks up with, with uh, Earl Scruggs and a song called I Can't Tell the Boys from the Girls, which is like an anti-hippie song. And since Earl was playing those audiences, he didn't want to be like, you know, you know, you know, mess up the cash cow by like, you know, making an anti-hippie record. So I was like, no, 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 this ain't going to work. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's a coming split. And in this one, they talk about that a split that happens around this time, and they, t- they talk about it in the context of this is the period when hillbilly becomes country and western, and the same time that race records become rhythm and blues, and right. And they talk about how for a while folk music might have been the term. Like Hank Williams called himself a folk musician. And then they get, you know, they say folk music becomes this music that's more likely to come from New York City. And people our age will remember the old Pace Bacani sauce when they, you know, where's the salsa come from? New York City, you know. And and so mm-hmm. there's that there's that dig. And of course the little hint of anti-Semitism there whenever people start dissing New York. But it's a true point. I mean, folk music the Weavers, who are another huge, huge factor in this same period, that Goodnight Irene is a massive hit, I think a year after the same year as Tennessee Waltz. And it's part of this search for comforting music, for simple music that's really big in the post-war period. But they do, they take Woody Guthrie. Folk music. I'm sorry, double back what you say about folk music. Uh, I think one of the very first uh, Elvis Presley LPs referred to him as a folk singer in the liner notes. Oh, yep. Yep, I know exactly. That was, what you're pretty, that was pretty early. They were still trying to like you know search 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 out the whole deal, but yeah. Yeah, they're trying to figure out what is this stuff, and 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 they're very clear that you know Woody Guthrie was kind of uh, pushed out of country because of his politics, and that you know especially in this Cold War period, people in the South are very conservative, and they're not into communism, <laughs> and then. And that kind of left-wing yeah. politics that Woody Guthrie adopted. Um, but like Marty Stewart said, musically, Woody is country. And he wrote, you know, they talked about Philadelphia Lawyer last time. They don't talk about right. Oklahoma Hills, but his cousin Jack Guthrie had a huge hit uh, with Oklahoma Hills um, by Woody around this time. And the, the other thing they talk about, the theme in this is the professionalization of Nashville. They talk about this is the first period when Nashville is called Music City USA. They talk about Fred right. Rose at Acuff Rose and how he's a huge part of Hank Williams' career and, the, and that the song publishing you know, becomes uh, – Nashville becomes a secondary center of song publishing. And they talk about mm-hmm. Felice and Bodlow Bryant as their – um, proxy songwriters. And these are the first people who come to Nashville and make their living just as songwriters. So um, let's hear our last song. And this this is another twofer. I'm trying to cover multiple topics. And this is Kitty Wells, who's big in this episode because of her song, her answer song to The Wild Side of Life. It wasn't God who made Honky Tonk Angels. But here she's doing a song by uh, Boodle O'Brien called Hey Joe. This is Kitty Wells. And that was Kitty Wells doing Bud O'Brien's Hey Joe, not to be confused with Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe or Dino Valenti or whoever it was that actually wrote Hey Joe. But, um, you know, that's the Bryants. They go on to write a ton of songs for little Jimmy Dickens and the Everly Brothers later on and become um, some of the first people who really make Nashville a songwriter's town and show that you can make a living just writing songs and, and doing it in Nashville. They turned down opportunities to go to New York and stayed there in Music City, USA. And so, you know, and, and the, the other 
element of the professionalization they talk about. And they use Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters to kind of connect the thread because they've talked about the Carter family in each episode. And now it's just Maybell and her three daughters, Helen, Anita, and June. And they're doing radio shows and they get a big, big show, a nationally syndicated show in Missouri, and they've found Chet Atkins along the way. And he's a guy who was struggling for all his virtuosity. He was too bluesy, too jazzy. Country audiences didn't quite know what to make of him. But when you put him with Mother Maybell and the Carter sisters, he fit right in. He can add those hot guitar solos, and it's in a country context, and people know what they're getting. And the Carter sisters only get invited to the Grand Ole Opry because they're selling so much flour for a rival flour company. And the flour company that's sponsoring the Grand Ole Opry is, you know, uh, these girls are cutting into our sales. You need to get them on our team. And, you know, they tell the whole story about how they make them an offer, but they say, but don't bring Chet Atkins. And Mother Maybell and Doc say, no, no, no. You know, it's a package deal. You either get Chet Atkins and the Carter sisters, you don't get any of us. They sweeten the deal, no dice. And they finally, okay, okay, you can bring Chet Atkins in. And apparently the explanation for that is that the Nashville Seamsters were already afraid that Chet Atkins would come in and take over. And, and this was a period when Nashville's becoming a hub of recording. And Red Foley's band was supposedly the first sort of A-list session crew in Nashville around this time. And yeah, I can definitely see being afraid of Chet Atkins uh, coming in and taking over. And this is long before Tyler Coe uh, was around to give the revisionist take on Chet Atkins, which we're all enjoying on Cowboys and uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones second season. Yep. But uh, I mean, he wasn't but Chet Atkins than anybody else has been. I mean, of course, you know, he was great, but then again, he did tone down a lot of things too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a flip side to every coin. Right. And, and that's, you know, and Hank, I mean, Chet was, you know, like just read about his sessions with Elvis Presley and, and you can just, or Waylon Jennings or so many others that, that struggled uh, under the thumb of Chet Atkins. And at the same time, uh, you know, he did raise the game there in Nashville and, and, you know, this was an era. This was an era where country music gets codified and where Nashville becomes the center. And I think the first move of that was the Grand Ole Opry getting the WSM Clear Channel status. Then when they got the NBC syndication, then when they got Roy Acuff and the star system and professionalized. And, you know, by the time you've got people like Felice and Boudreaux Bryant moving to Nashville and, and a company like Acuff Rose there, the center of gravity is established and Nashville becomes the center of country music in this country for the rest of the century. We, we, we were talking about the honky tonk era earlier, right? Yeah. You know, the thing about it, like the honky tonk era, when it got killed off by rock and roll, it's like, it wasn't like, you know, honky tonk was in a slump. It just got like, you know, uh, it just got like, you know, thrown to the side of the road by rock and roll. Cause honky tonk was still going, going big guns, you know? And it's like, for a minute there, it seems like all the country guys, it's like a skeleton, a lot of people's closets, but all the country guys who were around back then, they had, you know, they had to make their consciously rock and roll record, right? And I think all those rockabilly records, like your Humbugging Me by Lefty Frizzell, you yep. know, and, and Rocket by Thumper Jones, like those didn't make it. They got lost in the sea of like Elvis imitators, as they were calling them back then. You know, so I think somebody in Nashville kind of figured that the only way we could uh, we could uh, compete with uh, rock and roll is to not make rock and roll records per se, but make pop records because there might still be an audience for that. Plus the fact too that at that time 
rock and roll. I mean, it's kind of like the image was changing. It went from like, you know, the the the, the shouting Southern guy with R&B influences like Gene Vincent, you know, or Eddie Cochran. It kind of went from that. It's like the Fabians and the Frankie Avalons, you know? And I think yeah. that it was kind of easier, you know, for like, you know, the pop crossover country records, you know, to like compete in that environment. Like say, Brenda Lee, I don't know how much of a country person you call her, even though she was on the documentary, I know. But, you know, things like Brenda Lee, Patsy Cline, you know. Uh, yeah, and we'll be talking about them next time. And and Brenda Lee's fascinating to me because she had Owen Bradley producing her. She had a lot of the same songwriters as Patsy Cline. And it's... Same label. Yeah, same label. And, you know... And and they're great until you play the Patsy Klein records right next to them. <laughs> Patsy just folds her up like a dollar bill. But yeah, uh, I, I think uh, well, and, that's, and that's, I think that's, that's, that was like the voice experience. I mean, Brenda was like a thirteen-year-old girl. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was it was it was not a fair competition at all. But you know, Brenda Lee definitely made her mark. And and I think it wasn't just going pop, but also going grown up and more more going in that in that slipping around direction and these these cheating songs and these adult concerns that are not not for kids. And you know, they just sort of conceded the kid market to rock and roll. And it's a fascinating period. But the last thing I want to cover is. Uh, the death and decline of Hank Williams, because they they cover Hank through multiple points in in this. They you know they talk about his beginnings as a songwriter and and his initial relationship with Acuff Rose. They talk about how he had to go into exile because he was such a screw up that you know he's on the Opry early on, gets kicked off, has to go to the Louisiana Hayride, which is of course where Elvis is going to become a big star. But not just Elvis, also Webb Pierce and Carl Smith and a ton of people make their mark on the hayride. Hank Williams is the first one. And Lovesick Blues, the Emmett Miller song, is that's his She Loves You or Satisfaction. That's his massive, massive breakthrough song. And and that's, yeah. you know, um, the one. But then they talk about how, you know, at one point Audrey had divorced him and he cleans up and Audrey takes him back. He gets the Grand Ole Opry takes him back and then he goes on this incredible 18 month two year run and then it all you know the wheels just fall off and um he he burns himself out and dies but this bit where they 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 focus in on on the death and decline of Hank Williams and and you know in late 1951 I guess over the Christmas holidays of 1951 he and Miss Audrey go to war she kicks him out of the house it's all over and, you know, they've got um, one of his best friends, which is just awesome. The fact that they could find somebody who was a running buddy of Hank Williams to be on this documentary in the 21st century is um, is just awesome. And the guy, you know, pulls no punches. He talks about how, you know, Hank was fine when he was drinking beer, but when he hit that hard liquor, you know, he was just intolerable. And, and one story they don't tell, though, is they talk about how Mother Maybell had taken him under her wing and tried to save him. They don't talk about the time he set off a gun right next to June Carter on their front porch, and that's when Mother Maybell gave up on him. So they, they oh. you know, so, sort of, you know, they don't valorize it or whatever, or soften it too much, but there's not enough room to go into all the horrors. You know, like I think it was Ernest Tubb who invited Hank out fishing one time and Hank shows up at five o'clock in the morning with a shotgun and a bottle of Jack Daniels. <laughs> you know, and it's like the most terrifying day of Ernest Tubb's life. Not a lot of fish get caught. But so Hank was just, you know, capable of being an absolute monster when he was drunk. And in that last year 
Yeah, and he's you know he's got this physical. He had probably had spina bifida, and by the time he's 29, he's just in agonizing pain all the time. He falls off a stage, probably was drunk, has to wear a back brace. He gets a quack doctor who puts him on coral hydrate, which is on top of the, the amphetamines and the secondals and, and the morphine that he's already doing on top of the beer and whiskey. And it's, you know, Kurt Cobain, I think, is one of the best analogs. I mean, just one of these people who had all these gifts and was so able to triumph in this world, but at the same time was just miserable the whole time they were alive. And, and you know, right. life was agony. They go into the last ride, the famous last ride, where he's got the 18-year-old chauffeur driving him um, through, the, through the hills of, of the Southland to his death. And they talk about his funeral, you know, and they say 20,000 people attended in Montgomery, Alabama. And, you know, all the country grades perform. But I was really touched that there was a black gospel group, the Southland Singers, and that the the wow. segregated balcony was full to capacity, that the black folks in Montgomery wanted to pay their dues, uh, to pay their respects to the Hillbilly Shakespeare as well. And, and that, that made me a little overclimbed. That's pretty interesting, yes. I mean, you know, everybody acknowledges him as the king, and you don't think about um, – I don't know. Chuck D said something once that stuck with me was that if you want to market stuff to black people, market it to white people and you know, they'll, they'll follow. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think if you were black in Montgomery, Alabama, I doubt you could avoid hearing Hank Williams. And, and I think his music speaks to a lot of people. And obviously it did. And, and, you know, um, it, I've heard a lot of people that, you know, where they were living, like black people where they were living in the early fifties, um, Rhythm blues didn't get as much exposure on the radio as country did. Yep. You know, and you know, it's like more people probably had radios and record players. So I mean, that's kind of where you in the country, at least. You know, it's like that's kind of where you went if you want everybody listens to to country music. You know, whether or white or not. You know, and while I have heard every, every now and then, I run across a quote. You know, from um, from a black performer who was around back then. You know, and they said that even though they were programmed towards like jazz and R&B, you know, they always had a love for Hank Williams, you know, and I, and that's kind of, I was, I was kind of shocked just now. I mean, maybe I should have known it, but I didn't, you know, that, that, that the, the black half of the, of the, of the segregated balcony, you know, was full at Hank Williams's uh, funeral, you know, yeah. that's what I was like really. I mean, you, you were those like, you know, maybe one or two country fans here and there, you know, and you figured that, you know, they probably wouldn't, but, but they wouldn't dare show their faces at his shows. You know what I mean? Yeah. They might, I don't want to say positive fans, but just the fair, mere fact that, I mean, Hank probably did have a lot of country, white, black fans, but they weren't going to be hanging out on a country set, you know, but the fact they turned out for this funeral kind of lets you know, you know, the 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 how wide his influence was cast large shadow yeah absolutely and having the southland stingers on stage honoring his memory with their music i just feel like that that maybe was a moment when it was a time for peace and everybody recognized everybody was born in hank williams i mean this was a prince this was the hillbilly shakespeare and you know just an incalculable loss like chris christopherson is just you know uh, talking about how how many great songs he took with him when he died and and fred foster has a great quote too that when he was in a diner and he heard that hank williams had died he cried he couldn't help it and he was just like you know this was a loss a loss to all of humanity and i think that's the thing like hank williams is a person 
he's not somebody I would have wanted to know, you know, based on every account of his conduct and behavior, but his gifts, something I've treasured my whole life and, and, you know, just an incalculable contribution to American history. So in so far as if you're going to tell a story, you've got to personalize it, I guess. And, and that's what Kim Burns has chose to do focus on Hank Williams. And it's hard to argue with that. And they're really, this, Reminded me a lot of Jimmy Rogers, too, where the fact that Jimmy Rogers is all over that first episode and then he's gone for the second episode. And Hank Williams totally dominates this episode. He's going to be gone for the next one. So makes sense to me. Any final thoughts, James Porter? Uh, No, I think we pretty much covered everything. I mean, although you did say something about personalizing uh, stories to make people uh, uh, understand it better. Uh, you you were talking about Ken Burns and personalizing Hank Williams' life, but I kind of think that's kind of what Hank Williams was doing with his songwriting. Yeah, he might have been writing about might have about him and Audrey, might have been writing about like you know something he heard he overheard, you know. But anyway, he was like the voice for a lot of people. Yeah, and that kind of explains why that really explains why he was such a phenomenon and why that uh, the place where the funeral took uh, the funeral occurred was so full. So Absolutely. that's kind of where. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, James Porter, it's been a hoot, and we'll be back next time to talk about part four. We'll be talking about the late 50s and Patsy Cline and all that great stuff. So, for Let It Roll, right. see you next time. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Country Roll will be back next week when James and Nate discuss episode four. I Can't Stop Loving You, which covers Nashville's struggles to adapt to the sudden emergence of rockabilly in Memphis, Johnny Cash, Patsy Cline, and the Nashville Sound. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single pole switches as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 